Marcus, yeah, glad to be here. Thank you. I'm yeah. very excited for this one. I uh, we we had we set it up a couple times and then we had to. I messed up and then babysitter couldn't come. So <laughs> yeah, took a little bit, but I'm <laughs> nah, here. So we're good. We're here. Yeah. We're ready to go. Um, so we're gonna be talking a lot about drugs today, um, yeah. which is not a topic I really got into until I watched uh, Narcos, <laughs> right? The uh, Netflix series. And the thing that just kind of blew my mind was the, obviously, it's it's not hard to, f- to figure out that drugs are <clears throat> a big issue, especially now with the opioid crisis in North America in particular. But there's something really eye-opening when you look at, well, and this was about the states, so narcos is around mm-hmm. the states, just their drug policies and and how it's really not effective at anything other than contributing to uh, corruption and violence and, you know, paying, giving money to the wrong people. Um, so it's something really interesting and, uh, yeah, it's, it's awesome to have you here to talk a little bit about that and through the lens of, uh, Vancouver and the downtown east side and, uh, this new project that you're working on, which is really exciting. Great. Yeah, um, no, I'm a big fan of Narcos. So, oh, there you uh, go. <laughs> so yes, both original and Narcos Mexico. Oh, I just finished. So, uh, yeah, and if anybody, if I'm ever in conversations about, you know, our drug policy and war on drugs, I ask people, have you watched Narcos? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't have much more to add to that. Yeah. This, this is what we're doing, mm-hmm. and we're continuing to do it. I mean, it's all, Narcos is all historical, but uh, the th- same thing's happening right now. Like, and uh, the reason we have fentanyl in our street is because of uh, drug prohibition. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, yeah, it's an ongoing story, and we haven't seemed to learn very much. Yeah. And there was a um, there was a, a quote by Nietzsche that I came across uh, the other day, which I thought was really interesting in in regards to what you're doing. And the quote is: "The surest way to corrupt a youth is to instruct them to hold in higher esteem those who think alike than those who think differently." And I just think, especially nowadays, echo chambers and cancel culture, we're just we seem to be not very interested in listening to anything anyone has to say unless they completely agree with our position and yeah. i think that's such a dangerous idea because that's not how you're supposed to grow how you're supposed to learn you know yeah. i mean even if you have an idea and you think it's pretty well thought out well maybe there's something that someone else has to offer that actually you might find beneficial to you yeah and, and for drug policy um you add like these big levels, layers of bureaucracy on top of that. So it's hard to move any policy or health issue um, for anything. And then you add all the baggage of drug policy on top of that. And it's no wonder that we can't seem to move the dial. Yeah. And yeah, it's just unfortunate. Um, And it's, yeah, it's, it's great to have you because I know my views on drug policy are quite progressive i would say i like the portugal model of let's just legalize everything legalize it regulate it get tax revenue from it make it safe 
Um, and the statistics from Portugal are pretty good. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I could, we could talk a little bit about Portugal. I mean, I've, uh, I went there specifically to, to learn about oh, that and, uh, and spent sort of a week with the officials and visited all the things. It's, uh, in a, you know, in a nutshell, it's underwhelming. I mean, the idea is great. Um, and I think that, that we, we can learn from it, but, um, it's, they haven't gone far enough. And, uh, uh, besides, you know, not harassing people for small quantities of drugs, they really haven't done much to, uh, um, really talk about the, the narco side of things. I mean, there's still all the drugs coming in there are still illegal and, uh, prohibition is still quite active. So on the, on the one one hand, clearly uh, not filling our jails with you know nonviolent drug offenders is important, and that's Portugal's helped help with that, or that's you know part of the uh, outcome of that, which is very positive. But they haven't really got to the issue of uh, you know really um, allowing people access to psychoactive substances in a safe way. So they don't have very much harm reduction there, actually. Um, and the jails are still full of people who are traffickers and other things. So, so it's a great start, um, but I came away there uh, quite underwhelmed as far as uh, exactly what they've done. <laughs> yeah. So. And how long ago was that when you were there? Oh, probably two years ago, three, okay. two so or three years ago. Pretty yeah. recent then. Pretty recent, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so you spent a lot of time on the working in and around the downtown east side. Uh, of Vancouver. Um, so could you just give us a little bit of context as to how bad it is? <laughs> yeah. Well, my, you know, my journey is really uh, not so much drug policy to start out. It was about HIV prevention. So um, my career really as, um, you know, started when HIV first was introduced into the world. And uh, I've really followed that trajectory um, as far as my own interests and you know what I've been able to become involved in so um, I would I started medical school in 1982 which was the first time that you know in 1981 was the you know pivotal article um, from the states saying that these weird infections were occurring in San Francisco and New York and then um, it was 84 when the virus was first identified and then you know, the rest is history. And when I was in medical school, I was quite interested in that and the, um, in infectious diseases per se. And uh, HIV at that time, um, although it started in the gay population, it, it, the biggest impact was hemophiliacs who have been given these, these tainted blood products. And so I worked in a clinic um, with a guy named Dr. Walker who um, was following like 120 hemophiliacs in uh, McMa at McMaster University and that was kind of my elective that I was doing and uh, these these young guys were all just dying like there was no is no treatment there was very little known about the virus um, and uh, it, yeah the whole clinic basically in about a you know five-year period everybody died it was pretty pretty amazing in retrospect and then I was interested in global health and I um, went to the University of Manitoba for my infectious disease training, and um, that took me to Kenya. So I lived in, in Nairobi for four years and worked on an HIV project there. Again, in retrospect, when uh, it was pretty crazy times when there was a lot of transmission of infection, a lot of people getting sick, 
and absolutely nothing to offer people. So I worked at a, a clinic there uh, called the Special Treatment Clinic, which really was designed to be a central place where people with sexually transmitted infections went. Um, so anybody with a complaint between their waist and their thighs was given a green slip and to go visit this clinic. And people would try, this was basically from people all around uh, all around Kenya. So there was people who traveled for days to get to this particular clinic and line up. And we saw like a thousand people a day or that were lined up there. Jeez. And uh, at that time, uh, probably... Uh, 30% were HIV positive. Um, they came, a lot came with other sexually transmitted infections, but uh, it was just basically a marker for being exposed to HIV. And uh, again, looking back when basically I had nothing to offer, I could, I had some antibiotics to treat their um, sexually transmitted infection, which was high on their mind. But then we, in, when we introduced HIV testing and they would, I would have to tell them, you know, you're also HIV positive. Um, unfortunately there's not much we can do for you um you know take try and stay as healthy as you can and uh here's some condoms and try not to uh give it to others um so that was you know pretty crazy times and you know in uh in 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 that you know in africa um you know maybe uh 30 million people have died in the last uh, three decades. So it's been a massive, massive, you know, public health crisis there. So I lived through that part of it in, in Kenya. And I moved back to Canada um, in, uh, I went to Harvard. I lived in, in Boston for a few years and then, but I was continuing my research work there. So from a distance and uh, I continued that for almost a decade. So I had a lot of, I knew a lot of, uh, people were working in Africa at the time. Um, I wasn't around when treatment was finally introduced, but the amazing thing with treatment in Africa is it, it happened almost 10 years after we had effective treatment. So although, you know, uh, Afri people in Africa and poor countries um, now have generally reasonable access to HIV medications, um, it, it was like almost a decade by the time in the mid-90s when we had semi-effective treatment to the mid-2000s when there was actually availability in Africa. So um, again, a, a, you know, a huge black mark on <laughs> public health and our global response. And basically we sat back and let millions of people get infected and die without treatment, even though we had it. And then... Um, so I, I was, you know, I, I still was maintaining my interest in global health, but I had a young family. Um, it became more difficult to live there, though. It was, it was quite, uh, quite an amazing experience living there with three young, young kids. Um, and then I took a job here in British Columbia in, in 1999. So, um, and before that, I knew very little about drugs. I mean, just what the average person knew about drugs, but I, you know, had... Uh, you know, had watched the, the right movies and I, I, I heard about heroin and, you know, but I've never, I never really was exposed to like a group of people that are actually, uh, living the life of a, a heroin addict. And so, uh, so that was quite eye opening. And, uh, back to your question about the downtown East side, it, it had existed long before 1999, mm -hmm. obviously. And, uh, 
probably I I inherited this uh, large cohort study called Vitus, which uh, since the early early to mid '90s had followed a cohort of about a thousand people who were using drugs and basically just documented them getting um, exposed and infected with HIV. So Vitus, when I came and started heading that project up was about 30 to 35 percent of people were HIV positive already and that got quite a lot of headlines because those were numbers that were way out of key, way out of whack with the general population obviously and even you know similar to what we're seeing in Kenya like as far as the prevalence in the community so uh, so there was a lot of focus as far as that community went with uh, HIV prevention and uh, a lot of the, um, you know, early harm reduction interventions sort of came out of the downtown east side. So I would say for the last 20 years, the downtown east side has sort of been a, a mini laboratory of harm reduction and drug policy. Um, and we make two steps forward and three steps back sort of thing. But um, people look at the downtown east side as uh, having quite a you know, progressive uh, way to deal with drug use. Having said that, I've, you know, shown like, a, you know, hundreds of people around the downtown east side and they mostly look at me and go, well, this is progress. Like this is, you know, this is how much worse could it be if you didn't do these things? And I'd say, well, probably quite a bit worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we've never, what, uh, despite our ability to uh, expand har basic harm reduction services, we have not really cracked the nut on drug policy. So uh, despite the, you know, the progress and what's allowed to happen there, the prohibition and um, continuing to make drugs illegal and having uh, punishment as our prime, you know, tool um, has not really changed very much. And uh, it's quite, you know, fascinating just to look at the, you know, how really little progress we've made as far as actual drug policy. And um, it's... Uh, and a lot of people's lives have been ruined and a lot of people have died because of it. The thing I always drives me nuts is the, and that's a very American style, is just prohibition. Just make it illegal and throw people in jail. And I, it just never made, it doesn't work. It doesn't make mm. sense, first of all, and mm. it doesn't work. And the thing that I always think is so funny is uh, in medical law last semester, we had the the abortion debate come up, which is always, that's always fun in a law class to <laughs> be going through that. And it's funny if you say uh, for abortion that, well, just the, the easiest way to prevent an abortion, right, is to just not be having sex, just completely stay away from it. But right. if you say that, people laugh right in your face because it's ridiculous and yeah. it deserves to be laughed at. It's just absurd. Like that is not a solution, right? Yeah. And it's funny, but for whatever reason, that same person who will laugh in your face about saying, oh, you know, abortion, what are, what are you talking about, you know? But when, the, when you ask them about drugs, they go, most people will have yeah. a complete the opposite view. They'll yeah. be like, oh, yeah, no, that sounds fine. Sounds yeah. reasonable. People should not use drugs, yeah. And so. it's like, well, where, where was the logic? You know, you had the logic over there, but now when you're talking about this subject, it goes out yeah. the window. So it does seem, I don't really know, obviously there's a, some pretty, you know, sophisticated sociological, you know, yeah. a lot of things going on there to formulate that, but 
it just drives me nuts because the problem is, is that you know, when you have, so in Canada, our conservative party was, oh man, how long were they around for before Trudeau? Like 16 years? I like think four 12, terms or yeah. 12. Yeah. So our drug policies were, you know, conservative because mm-hmm. that was the, the party that was in, in play. And, you know, again, it, it's just a, we're going to criminalize, we're going to throw people in jail for, yeah. you know. Well, you can't spread it across parties and ideologies, but the no parties changed. So, I yeah. mean, um, the conservatives can uh, be more out in front with their opposition to it and their uh, support of prohibition. Um, but at the end of the day, the other parties haven't done anything to change it. So they're just as just as culpable, I yeah. think. So you can, you know, the, the conservatives are at least out there. And to, you know, to their defense, I think they're echoing what the general public still thinks also. And that's that, what uh, it is. People should not use drugs. It's still a just say no kind of society. And uh, yeah, I don't think they're, um, you know, t- to me, and I battled, you know, with the with the governments and policies for a long time. And it's clearly the conservatives view of things are an easier target. At least you have something to go after. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, but I don't think they're out of keeping with the general public. I think most people, the only reason we make these drugs illegal is that that will dissuade people from using them. And the people that are already using them, if we punish them enough, that will convince them that it's not worth it and they should stop. And that we have plenty of evidence that is not how it works. And, uh, and partly it's because it's, although it's technically a choice, if somebody takes some, buys some heroin on the street or fentanyl and draws it up in a syringe and puts it in their arm, there clearly is some sort of, um, you know, could, they could control, they don't have to do that technically, but, um, they use people use drugs to self-medicate and to uh, dull their pain. And the more pain that we inflict in people, just has the opposite, of, you know, the opposite effect. So the the person who's just spent the last six months in some kind of pre-trial or detention that gets thrown out on the street doesn't spend that six months going, man, I really made a mistake, and I be sure I'm not going to use those drugs anymore. It's just totally the opposite. They're more traumatized and hopeless. And the first thing they want to do is get high. And uh, so it has a, it just has a totally opposite effect. And uh, we, we know that, but we just continue to punish people and, and um, the life stories that you hear of people. And I understand the downtown East side is a bit of a microcosm. um, But I visited, you know, when I, when I visit other cities or travel, um, instead of going to the museum, I try to ask people where the scene is, you know. So I, I have seen a lot of drug scenes in different places, and they're very similar. Whether any, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Seattle or San Francisco or New York or Boston, any other place in, in North America that I'm familiar with, or even, you know, uh, in Europe, I visit a lot of places in Europe. They look much the same. The people using the drugs sort of look the same. And uh, they, uh, they've just been people that are beaten and beaten and beaten. And somehow, you know, they, and you do get the odd person who manages to get out of there. So there's very articulate um, people who have got out of that community and are now are 
great spokespeople, but they're not spokespeople for prohibition. The people that have survived it are spokespersons for, you're killing us. Um, I kind of, over time, I was able to get out of this, but right, but there was years when I wasn't, and uh, we have to treat people totally different. Because the other thing is, if people, um, most people grow out of their drug use for whatever ever reason. So I know people who have used heroin for 30 years and have lived in the downtown east side for 30 years. Um, but there are um, many people that, uh, you know, after a time they find, they get out of it. They do get out of it. And uh, it's just so tragic that we've made it much more difficult for people to get out of it by punishing them. And now, you know, in the overdose crisis is a great example where people don't get a second chance anymore. So, so many people have just died from it. And they would have been able to get out of their drug use, but now they have no second chance. So we really need to change our whole approach. If somebody's currently in that situation, we have to give them the opportunity to uh, to get out of it, but that's not by punishing them more. That's by actually giving them opportunities. And my my experience, you know, to encapsulate how I see people moving on, is if something happens to them that makes drugs less attractive, and that um, they find actually something better to do, and. Uh, that often means getting a house or getting your kids back or a relationship fix, if, you know, uh, you know, works out. Like there's things that people, you know, and like all of us who aren't using drugs consistently, um, our life is, you know, good things happen to us, bad things happen to us. And uh, when a good thing happens to us, it changes our viewpoint. And so uh, that's the same with people who are using drugs and uh, they, people can, you know, get out of it if we give them the opportunity. But instead of giving the opportunity to get out of it, we just continue to punish them and bang them down into the as low as they can get. And it makes it very difficult. Well, and it just seems like it, you're just continuing the cycle of disenfranchising already disenfranchised people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like you're just continuing to keep them on the outside. And, yeah. you know, when when you look at criminal justice, it's the same idea. How do you prevent people from going back to prison? Recidivism. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, you know, mental illness is a big thing. Poverty, trauma. But that requires governments to come in and set up resources, get them, you know, teach them to help themselves, you know, so that they can integrate mm -hmm. back into, into society. And, you know, that does seem to show that they're less likely to go back into yeah that self-medication by whatever drug of choice that they're that they're using and it's also helpful to look at it as a, a life trajectory so somehow we've simplified things that if somebody's currently you know um, really given up everything to use their drugs so that's a person in a tent or a shopping cart who've really uh, you know really given up everything for their drug use um, most of the those people, they it wasn't as though they were doing great by societal standards. Yeah. Uh, hit a roadblock and then tumbled into this and lost everything, and then we're just giving them a lifeline so they can get back up to how they used to be. Most people don't have a used to be like the, the, their drug use is part of their trajectory. They a lot of people had issues and trauma and different things in their lives that happened that got them there. And we just want to make their trajectory a little on the upslope, you know. And it's not this idea that they fell off a cliff and then we have to bring them back up. They're, 
that for many people using substances is part of their life it's part of their trajectory they and they shouldn't have to look at it as like the dark times of my life this was still their life and uh they you know they can move on and we have to allow them other things but it's not somehow we got this concept that people have to recover and the question is recover from what like what <laughs> what what are you recovering from you know you were a lot of people had really problems in their childhood and and that you know it, it's been very difficult for them and uh um, and their trajectory, it's the, the use of drugs is part of their, their life. And, uh, you know, and, the, and there's nothing to, and, and their drugs use could be, continue to be part of their lives because that's how they, they, um, they survive. So a lot of people without drugs w wouldn't be here. I mean, uh, depression, anxiety, other mental health, it, w it would just overcome them. They couldn't deal with it. And uh, drugs actually give people a way to deal with some of their problems in, you know, maybe not our, uh, what we consider the best way to do it, but it is a way to do it. And uh, we shouldn't uh, heap on all these other panics penalties on top of them when they're just basically trying to get by and that's a really good segue so thank you for doing my job for me into a program called insight right um tell us about that so insight um is the supervised injection site from 2003 i'd also like to talk about my safe which is my is my dispensing is my yeah. drug dispensing yeah. machine so it so Insight, I think, I think there's lots of lessons to be learned from um, a supervised injection site. So Insight was opened in, in 2003, North America's first legally sanctioned supervised injection site. And so, um, and I was involved in the evaluation of that. And uh, we have, you know, 40 or 50 peer-reviewed publications. We really tried to make this a very academic exercise. We had cohorts and we published a lot of information. So we have like you know, super strong scientific evidence that insight uh, saves people's lives. It was a way to connect with people, it reversed overdoses, gave people education, made sure they had uh, clean needles and rigs to use. So, I mean, it was a, you know, by any measure, a highly successful, um, I, as a stepping back, I, I, but I've been at many um, public forums where me or a colleague of mine with all the science behind us, all the, you know, I know this uh, inside out, I've been working in this environment for so long. And then there'd be some neighbor who found a syringe in his backyard saying that this <laughs> insight's terrible because now, every, you know, syringes are everywhere. And if we did a, you know, did a vote at the end, half the people would side with the neighbor who find it, found a needle saying this insight's terrible. These supervised decks don't work. And what we just saw in, uh, in Alberta, when they did their um, evaluation of the insight, they came up with exactly the same garbage, you know, that it tracks people, it's, it keeps people, enables people to use drugs, it... it uh, you know, it, all these negative things that people found in the community's perspective, totally, there's no evidence to support any of that, you know. Um, so we're still dealing with the 
the ideology, not so much the science or the evidence that we have. It's just people don't think other people should use drugs. So uh, no matter what we do or what science we do. So and it wasn't until um, an insight within six months of its opening, it was already at capacity. So there was six to 800 people going there um, or 600, 800 visits among four to 600 people. And uh, there was way more need than that. And so right out the get-go, we need more insights. And uh, that was stalled out. It just didn't work. And we had other, it wasn't just the conservative government, although they were most of it. Um, but there was no real push from the municipal or provincial governments or, you know, it wasn't, you know, just uh, um, just the, the prime minister's office who blocked all this. If there was enough you know, drive from the province, we could have done something, but there wasn't the appetite for that. And then um, the big breakthrough in supervised injection sites was uh, the provincial government and Terry Lake was our health minister at that time in the liberal slash conservative provincial party. And uh, he uh, allowed all these sites to open up. Um, and um, I actually was in conversations with him in, in Ottawa and trying to uh, um, you know, really encourage and we really need these or all over the province. Uh, so the supervised injection sites had a lot of baggage with it. So uh, I suggested that we call them overdose prevention sites or something different. And uh, that took off. So under his uh, leadership and uh, Perry Kendall was the chief health officer at that time. So they they uh, gave communities the go-ahead just to open these, forget about the Health Canada regulations and approval. And so we have about 30 of these now in the province. But from 2003 to about 2017, there was nothing, uh, no new ones in, uh, in Vancouver and no new ones across Canada. So uh, it took another cr crisis to kind of move the supervised injection sites. Now, ironically, under... COVID, what's happened in the last uh, couple of months, all of a sudden bringing large groups of people who use drugs together in a room to use together is not such a great idea anymore. And uh, we're really struggling with that messaging now because a lot of us have spent a lot of our efforts advocating for harm reduction and um, supervised injection sites or overdose prevention sites have really become synonymous with harm reduction. So there's been a huge movement and some progress in this across the country. And all of a sudden, these sites have, having to either close down or cut in half the P and make different, uh, you know, have different procedures now. So the one I work in mostly on Hastings called the Overdose Prevention Society, there was uh, 12 tables. There's down to six if somebody uh, actually overdoses and there's a big commotion around, you know, getting this person back, they have to clear everybody out. There's a kind of sanitation procedure happening now. The oxygen protocols we used to use, we're not using anymore because there was risk of, you know, aerosolizing all this COVID if the person had it. So there's, we're really now having to rethink the whole thing. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of problematic for harm reduction. But the, at the same time that the OPSs were opening, there was really a movement for this safe supply idea. So again, it, three years ago, this was like a crazy idea. Um, I 
published an editorial in the Canadian Medical Association Journal in 2018 saying we need a regulated supply of opioids. And uh, most of my colleagues were quite surprised it even got published because it was, uh, <laughs> and there was quite a bit of backlash by the physicians and addiction people that uh, this was crazy. Why would you give people these drugs? Because the media had kind of, especially in the US, vilified prescription drugs. So why, you know, this is all caused by crazy physicians giving these drugs out to people. And now look at the mess we're in. How could you possibly advocate that we should actually be giving these drugs to people? So it's still that attitude is out there. Um, but, um, you know, that kind of got the conversation going, I think. And then, you know, there's quite a bit of movement now in this idea called safe supply. And um, um, so I, I've been, um, and now because the people that were getting a safe supply actually don't need overdose prevention sites for to prevent overdoses because their chance of overdosing is essentially zero. They're getting drugs. They know what they is. They are uh, people uh, basically know how to use these drugs. If they get uh, you know hydromorphone pills and it's stamped on how much there is in there, they have an idea how much they need. And um, you know unless they're trying to overdo it, it's they, they'll be quite they'll be quite fine on those drugs. So there's no real need for them to be observed. Um, so I've been pushing that uh, we really need to allow people to take these safer drugs with them because their op the option is that they go to the alley and buy mystery drugs and they have a big risk of dying. So uh, so that's, mo that's dials moved. Uh, some of the evidence to support a safe supply is uh, from Vancouver in the Crosstown Clinic, which is sees about 140 people. Um, and they either get injectable hydromorphone or injectable heroin. These were studies that were done um, for, you know, six or eight years ago. And most of the candidates or most of the participants in those programs are uh, people who are in the original studies. And it was they did so well, it was thought totally unethical to stop them just because the study was over. So funding was uh, found that allowed people to continue. And slowly they've added a few more people on, but it's a very intensive medical program. So people have to be observed. No drugs leave that area. Um, and that's for a lot of people, just not a practical solution. We can't build thousands, you know, thousands of these things um, and give people, you know, real expensive drugs. And most people um, actually don't want to be watched when they're <laughs> using their drugs. So for, you know, 80% of people would never consistently do adhere to that program anyway. So I was pushing that we need programs that allow people to put drugs in their pocket and go. And um, so we, the, the MySafe program, so the, you know, the history of that. Um, so I, I did write a grant to Health Canada probably two and a half years ago when they had money available for innovative things for the overdose crisis and uh, that was a pill-based program using hydromorphone pills where most people would probably crush them up and inject them um, and that um, program uh, just could I just couldn't get uh, any any pickup and th there's that money that was given through the BC Center for Disease Control when I was there uh, you know close to three years ago not one pill has been given out just ba just kind of uh, you know grinding through the bureaucracy and there's at the end of the day there just wasn't a lot of comfort for giving drugs and allowing people to take them with them
So I did a, a talk in Victoria, BC, um, a couple of years ago, said that we need innovative ways to get these drugs out to people um, through pharmacies, nursing, um, outreach workers, and we could even put them in vending machines. I said that at the end of my talk. And then um, the next day in the local paper, Victoria Times, um, public health doctor um, wants to give dangerous drugs out in vending machines. It was the headline. Gotta love the media. Yeah. And so I said, <laughs> oh, well, I, I guess I remembered saying that, but it, it's, it's about getting people the drugs. It's not about a vending machine. So uh, I did probably, uh, you know, 20 interviews in the next uh, 24 48 hours and every interview was pretty much the same uh, doctor you want to give these drugs out in vending machines uh, how will you prevent children from getting these i said well no no it, obviously we wouldn't put them for they're not for children it would be very secure well doctor would you put them in shopping malls well of course i wouldn't put them in shopping malls like it's, it's not about the that it's so I had all these, I, you know, you have your, you know, 30 second clip on a radio show and, or that they produce, and I couldn't get the conversation back on track. I mean, this is about a safe supply of opiates to people who are dying of fentanyl poisoning and uh, we need to get it to them. So it's not about the vending machine, it's about the pills. And then after all these calls that were, you know, semi frustrating because they, I was kind of positioned as some lunatic guy who wants to give, you know, put in you know go to public schools and put in uh, heroin yeah. um that uh <laughs> um i decided it's the greatest idea ever yeah we should put them in machines like uh of course that makes total sense because people feel so much stigma they have no autonomy any medicalized program where they have to like go to a pharmacist and explain what they're doing or a physician like it's a huge barrier to people they're so uh just so um, isolated that given the opportunity to actually go to a machine made a lot of sense. And then uh, a day or two later, a guy from uh, Nova Scotia called me and he said he read this article and uh, he has vending machines and uh, he was going to try to put uh, cannabis in it because that was like the big thing at that time. Um, <laughs> but he thought that they may be good for my idea to put opioids in them. And so the rest is kind of history. I've been working with this company for two years now. And uh, we worked on, the, they had a prototype that they had and we kind of worked on modifying it. And uh, after like many meetings and things uh, to try to get approval for this, um, we, we brought one in uh, end of November last year with, uh, I would say, uh, no approval, but no... Uh, I was confident nobody was going to come and close it down. I mean, there was a lot of awareness at the college the pharmacy level and the ministry level, college of physicians. I mean, there was a lot of questions, certainly, but I was pretty certain that nobody would come and like haul it away or, you know, arrest me or anything. <laughs> so, uh, so we started it. Um, I handpicked five people who I knew um, just to test out the technology. Cause you know, to be honest, I didn't know how it would, how it would go over either and uh the machine is like an atm basically so it's an 800 pound solid box it's got a screen on the front that you can uh, send messages and people can um, and people can access it but um otherwise it's it's and and that screen is just basically if you cracked it you don't get into the box or anything it's pretty indestructible we've 
bolted to the floor. And so, um, and it's a biometric machine where people just show their palm of their hand to the machine on, the, on a scanner and it reads the vein pattern in the palm. It's this really high tech uh, Fujitsu kind of automation. And my understanding is that, you know, in five years, they plan to have this technology in all banks and stuff because, you know, having to remember pin numbers or carry a card around, it doesn't make that much sense if you can carry your ID on the palm of your hand, basically. So uh, the technology is really great. And so the five people have done extremely well on it. I can program the machine to their individual needs as far as how much they get out of it and uh, how often they can come to the machine. Most people, well, everybody at the beginning had to come four times a day. So they basically had one dose at a time. Um, since COVID hit, everybody now comes once a day because I don't want that much traffic. And we're up to about 15 people who regularly use it now. But the idea was just to demonstrate the technology more than demonstrate the efficacy of the whole program. So I'm really satisfied that it's worked out great, but I still don't have any funding to really move it ahead. Um, and we're going to... Uh, we have five machines that'll be ready to to launch in, uh, in within the next three weeks or so, and um, we're just good pushing ahead. So I got funding funding um, applications all over the place. Working with this dispension as the company, so I'm confident, semi confident, we'll get something to go. And I have a bunch of partners, the machines, and I wanted to demonstrate this as a Canadian. Um, response and uh so there's a, a partner in halifax and a partner in london ontario and victoria bc so we're trying to not put them all in the downtown east side so to show that this could work across canada so uh yeah so we're on the cusp of like you know really scaling this up or there's still the risk that it would have to fold back down but covid you know and it's given it kind of a, a new look right like what how else would you give people a safe supply of drugs? Like, you, you can't have frontline healthcare workers running all over the hotels, handing them out multiple times a day, however you wanted to do it. And people don't want, and, and the, the beauty of the machine is just the autonomy of it. You can keep it open. People can choose the time they want to go. Uh, they don't have to use the drugs when they get them out of the machine. They can... Uh, plan their day and how they want to use them around um, obviously the you know from the outside the biggest concern was diversion you know these drugs have street value what's to stop people from just selling them there really isn't anything to stop them but for the people in the program now who I've got to know I I, I think and asking them um, there's no real reason that they take like pharmaceutical drugs that they'd use and go trade them for poison on the street. Like it, what motivation would that be? They're very happy to get some drugs that, you know, they, that they know what they are and they won't kill them basically. And then the few people who have uh, said they've given some or sold some, it's always to partners or somebody who's already drug sick. So from that perspective, I mean, it's fine, really. Like any nice person would do that. So I just got picked up eight pills from this machine and uh, you look really terrible. Here's a couple, you know, and you can pay me back tomorrow. Like, I mean, it's fine. I don't, and in the drug, po any other poisoning epidemic, we'd want people to give safe stuff out to their friends. So it's, it, there's no reason or no thinking that people would 
sort of run to the public school and hand them over to the f- hand them over to the fence to a seven year old like it, it it doesn't make any sense so anyway so diversion's not a huge problem but I can't say it would never happen or it does never happen and the other thing if people could be targeted for their medications or something was a concern but with the smallish doses people get there's people are walking around that community with drugs in their pocket all over the place there'd be no real reason to you know go after somebody and nobody's reported any issues like that so um anyways it, it's worked out amazingly well and i think uh that uh this to me this is kind of harm reduction 2.0 and it's kind of a backwards way to regulate the drug so basically we're giving you drugs that normally wouldn't be given for this purpose um but will um allow you to have a steady supply of drugs and the it's basically a a a community um, initiative that's supported by police and the business associations because they see this as crime prevention so you get up in the morning and instead of going and finding somebody's bicycle (laughs) you just go and get the get the drugs and uh the stress and the you know so much of people's lives are revolved around how they're going to get money for today you know they people wake up drug sick with not no money like they have to come up with something you know and uh people come up with all kinds of different ways and uh some are very dangerous for people like stealing and uh sex work and uh we just basically turn a blind eye and expect people to get it the economy down there is massive like people are spending hundreds of dollars a day on drugs each uh where do they get that money it 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 comes from somewhere their welfare check doesn't cover it so we're all paying for it and uh you know crime in the city is is huge and uh and violence and things all stem from desperate people trying to do what they can and uh it's amazing to me it's not more desperate than it is i mean i i spend a lot of time down there i don't really feel threatened like why don't people come and steal my case you know <laughs> like they they should i mean in uh, bringing people here from the U.S. is especially interesting because we don't have at least guns, you know, aren't on the street. But you go into similar communities in New York and Boston, and uh, it's very dangerous because people do want your stuff, <laughs> and you you wouldn't walk around with it. And uh, and people have guns, so uh, it, downtown East Side is uh, to me amazingly calm and safe. Um, when you throw that many people into a desperate situation, <laughs> that it could be much worse. And I think with COVID and the 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 um, clampdown on borders and drug flow, I think things could get worse because we often think of the inconvenience to our economy and and uh, you know getting products to market, but it also is the illegal drug market. As I don't know what guys in narco are doing right now, they're freaking out. You know, it used well, they to be, would be though <laughs> easy to get it across the border. Now, ah, man, it's way more complicated. The borders are shut. You know, <laughs> uh, what's a mule supposed to do? You know, so uh, I think the drug supply is uh, really at uh, huge jeopardy. And uh, it'll, I think it'll just get worse because uh, most of the drugs that end up in British Columbia don't start out in British Columbia. Yeah, that's, yeah, I've, I've just been sitting here. I'm just like, just trying to like take it all in. But there's, um, as far as the machines go, I mean, that to me, 100% phenomenal. And that's just a, a brilliant idea. And 
it's funny because all the objections to your idea come from people who are on the outside looking in like well I, I don't even know if you can even say oh how are you going to prevent little kids from getting drugs as a real objection but okay if you want to give it that much credit by saying that but it's all from the outside looking in but you are very involved and you've been involved in that world you understand those people you understand what they go through and you also understand the medical system because that's where you've done your work you understand the bureaucracy of it all and so it just seems like the quote right at the beginning of the podcast when someone comes along with an idea that's this was a well thought out idea for you you know well i guess it, so. it started yeah. off as it started off <laughs> as a joke but after you thought about it yeah. you know and it really is because you know like you said when it comes to human rights autonomy privacy you know basic human rights that people like us all want to get all up in arms about but for people who are you know homeless and and drug addicted you know eh, we, we don't really care so much because you're over there and we're over here you know, yeah. well, we put in medicalized. So we think and, you know, even the most progressive people who prescribe methadone, the pharmacists who give methadone out that they're I think they're in the best interest. I, I don't I'm not judging their motives, but nobody's really stepped back and seen what like a structure we put in place and the rules we put in place for people are just so confining like it, you know. To ask people who are trying to reduce or stop their drug use to go line up at a pharmacy with other people every day who are doing the same thing, it's so stigmatizing. And it it's no wonder people push back from that. And the biggest reason that people stop their methadone is because of the pharmacies. And over every day, seven days a week, they have to do the same thing. They can't go away anywhere. It's We've made it extremely difficult for them to get carries. So it means every day they have to show up and do it. They can't go anywhere because only one pharmacy has their methadone. So if you want to go to Kelowna and see a friend for the weekend, forget it. It takes a week or two weeks for your physician to contact another physician who contacts another. Like it's it. The system is just so you know, so rigid and people, you know, we treat people like they're basically prisoners, you know, that this is our rules. And I think in Vancouver and the, you know, things have progressed. So, so, but there was a time when I started that if you uh, were put on a methadone program and they did a urine screen and you had cocaine in your urine, you were just, you're off the program. You're not playing, you're not (laughs) playing the game with me. You're, you're, you're not doing it. And so, and then what happens to that person? So, We've, we've really created a, a medicalized structure for our addiction treatment that, that is not serving the people. We're, we're not, you know, in harm reduction, we always, you know, use this term, meeting people where they're at. But we've designed our programs to meet regulators where they're at and meet, you know, whatever rules we've come up with f- for whatever motivated them. They make no sense. I mean... One of the pushbacks, I've had several from the College of Pharmacy. For instance, they could never support a program where I knowingly gave people dilated pills and they were going to grind them up and inject them because that's not what the pills were made for. And the safety of that has not been well established. Um, they shouldn't be, people shouldn't be doing that. And uh, granted, I mean, it's not what the pills were made for, but everybody's doing it for decades that's what people do with your pills so if you have a big problem with that then 
I guess do something about it, but don't say that knowingly that, you know, they, they would not support that. Like that is actually what's happening right now. And, uh, it, you have, you know, I'm not saying you need to support it, but just like get on with it. Like this is what people do with these medications because they can't get, you don't, we don't want them buying mystery powder. And so this is, you know, this, this is a substitute. It's less harmful than what they're doing now. So there's a, but all kinds of regulations. So the idea that, um, you know, when people first are introduced to the machine, if I, I should have recorded the looks on people's faces when they get their first packet out of the machine and they, they'd look at me and say, well, now what? And I say, well, not, no, now what? Nothing. They're your pills or your prescription. If you want to take them home, then take them home. If you want to grind them up, grind them up. If you want to use them in two hours from now, use them in two hours. So just having some freedom and really that's what people do when they buy drugs in an alley, right? Nobody's, the dealer's not saying, you know, use them right here. I'm going to watch you. <laughs> like, it's like, just get on with it. So I'm trying to emulate, you know, instead of buying it from, a, buying mystery drugs from some dealer in the alley, that this is just a way better option for you right now. And once you get the drugs, it's kind of up to you what you want to do with them. You're the, you're, it's your, you know, you're the drug user, not me. And, um, and for these drugs. Um, so, uh, yeah, so people are really, uh, you know, really like the idea that, you know, that we're treating, you know, everybody would say, I'm finally being treated like an adult, you know, like I'm, I'm not, these aren't my, the rules, you know, there's not that many rules. I have to come to the machine. I have to show the biometrics. It's, it is regulated. I, I actually know every pill that you got <laughs> in real time. So from a regulatory perspective it is tightly regulated um but once they are your drugs and the other um concept that i've really had to put out there that uh you know prevents pushback from the regulation is this is not a doctor who is uh giving filled a machine full of pills and are giving them out to people this is a prescription that you got the pharmacy fulfilled that prescription you got that prescription and all this is, is a safe place to keep your drugs in a lock box. So this is basically a lock box. And it's not really, I've even tried to get rid of the idea of dispensing because that has all kinds of red flags for regulators and pharmacy. You can't dispense, only pharmacists dispense. So, okay, I'm not dispensing. It's already been dispensed. People take, I get it. They get their own drugs and they can decide what to do with them. And in this case, they've elected to put them in a safe, secure lock box that can be regulated instead of, you know, putting them in a shopping cart and walking around with them that, that they'll lose and, you know, won't be able to control. So it's really tries to um, work with the actual individual, what's the best situation for them. But um, as far as uh, it's, it's really a lock box where people can safely store and uh, retrieve their medications. Yeah, that's, yeah, I know. I'm having a great time just sitting here. <laughs> I love it. But and you can put anything in it too. So yeah. I pick the hardest thing, right? So I take in you know, like heroin, like hillbilly heroin, and put it in it. You know, that's a you know it does raise some eyebrows. But um, methadone, pretty much every stigmatized thing that people would rather not line up and be seen. You know, and uh, you know you're father's the pharmacist. I'm married to a pharmacist. I mean, I, I'm not undermining their role in all this, but 
I can't think of anything that people need to see a pharmacist every day. Like what? you know, it, it becomes a bit monotonous for everybody involved, right? And so it's not, it's not a safety issue anymore. It just doesn't really make any sense. And if somebody could go retrieve their prescription, any prescription, um, and not have to deal with the, you know, judgment, stigma, whatever. And, and people don't even actually want to be asked how they're doing every day. Like <laughs> some days you're doing crappy, you know, like what I want right now is to get this drug uh, if I want to talk to somebody, there's other people I can talk to, but right now I want to separate that. I just want what I need. You just give it to me and I'm on my way. And, uh, for most of us would prefer that kind of arrangement rather than this judgmental. We do. Yeah. <laughs> look, look at, look at how we buy off Amazon all the time. Right. We all do already. Yeah. Like yeah. we really, do. we don't want to talk to no one. Right. We just want to get our crap and go. Yeah. And it's as simple as that. And why should it be any different for people buying their drugs like how, how is it that again it, it's just the i don't know maybe it was just, i don't know i mean i'm young so i don't know i guess i'm born in more of a progressive time but even then i mean there's people i know that are my age who are very conservative when it comes to their um, opinions on drugs but i don't know it, it just again to me it just kind of all comes back to just basic human rights that we're so willing to completely ignore when it comes to people who don't look and sound like us, you know? It's, it just seems so awful that the thing that really stuck in my mind when you said when um, one of the people who got their drugs from the machine and they looked at you and said, well, what now? That really mm. stuck with me. Mm. Like, that. that's actually, like, I'm almost, like, a little bit emotional about that because mm. that's... It just is an insight into how just put yourself in that person's shoes. Yeah. Just just what really try for. and f what that feels like. Yeah. It's really, um, yeah. that's tough. That's tough. And the other, the other thing that people, how entrenched it is in society and the medical community. So not giving these drugs out is just so entrenched and when i was getting trained and all the time i spent at st paul's and emergency department physicians would actually take pride in being able to detect the drug seeker right like people come <laughs> in they're writhing in pain they got headaches they're, you know wow. i need something and they go no nah, i don't think you're really serious you're just here because you are you are dependent on these drugs get out of my emergency department and that was a I think to a certain extent that is still alive and well, right? It's very hard for people to come out of an emergency department with any kind of opioid. Um, it's, and people are very, doctors are very attuned to that. And so I always confront, well, like what kind of, and so somebody comes in, they're desperate, they're drug seeking, they're, they're you know, they're, um, you know, really drug sick. And they're doing everything they can to get a hold of the drugs. And they go into the emergency department and come up with some story. You know, headaches are a great one because doctors are kind of reluctant to get you a CT scan of your head. Um, so they sort of have, and there's no, you know, you got a headache. I can't see anything. You don't, I can't see your headache, you know. So that's a good one. Back pain's a pretty good one. Um, so, so they'll come, people will come in. And uh, they'll go out with no, nothing. 
and the doctors and healthcare staff will say, well, we figured that guy out, you know, because look at, he was, you know, look at how he was 15 minutes ago. He couldn't like, he couldn't move. And we told him we're not giving anything. Now he's walking out. Proves my point. He didn't really. And then he goes in the parking lot of the hospital, buys fentanyl and overdoses and dies in the parking lot. Like, yeah. How successful is that medical intervention? You know, like really good for you, medical people. You really solve that one. You know, like it's it's crazy. It's lu- lunacy that we do that. But that's kind of the way the system works. And so uh, and with fentanyl has kind of changed the whole made it much more real because uh, if you go to the parking lot and you bought heroin, uh, it means that you had to spend some money or do something to get that. But chances are you would would survive it you'd be okay now you're dead like it's so like there's it's crazy that we think that's somehow the way we should be treating people if you if you're willing to go to that extent to get a handful of dillies or opioids or something give them to you need them like you know and uh we'll worry about your addiction later and and depriving you of like a, a prescription is not gonna fix your addiction it's not that you're gonna go oh that was too hard i guess i'm not gonna use drugs anymore that doctor was right like that happens zero times right so i don't know you know when you think about how ludicrous our approach is to addiction and how punishing it is for people for no real gain or no real reason um yeah, you really have to shake your head and go like, what the hell are we doing? <laughs> and so, um, but that's a, that's a situation that we're in for the most part. And it hasn't changed. I mean, I can talk like this, but uh, you won't find that many of my colleagues sitting here going, yeah, that's really true. Because the other thing I have, the, I try to have the public health perspective. So you can take, you could, you could talk to um, really seasoned addiction doctors who can tell you that over their career they have had a thousand people on methadone and they've all improved and they've done fine and i'm you know great i think that's great for them they should have that option but they haven't looked at it as a public health thing well look out your window because most of the people aren't in your office most of the people aren't on your program and this is the chaos that they're facing out there so we have to look at this broader than just a physician to patient relationship and I'm going to help you and save you. I've kind of got the the bigger perspective that there's literally thousands of people out there who are not connected to any of you wonderful doctors and we need to offer some kind of more broad public health stroke to this. And it doesn't mean I'm not undermining your relationship and how wonderful it's been and I've had those experiences myself. There's there's people out there through my clinical career that I think I've really helped like I've really, an individual, I built relationships with people and it's, I think they'd look back and go, that was very positive for them. And I've given them things that have helped them. And doctors all want to do that. Um, but in the broader scope of things, I still would look out my window from Native Health where I did a lot of my work and the streets in chaos. And most of those people, I don't know. And they, they're not coming to me. I'm, you know, there's no option, opportunity. And we, we need to look at it in a in a more you know, in a bigger picture that this cannot be solved by a few nice doctors helping a few ni- few people. This is a much bigger issue than that. When you were um, just bringing it back a little bit, when you when you're talking about how uh, doctors shooing away uh, people coming in for their fix in the emergency room, and then they go out and, and OD on the street. One of the things that kind of comes to mind is the 
the idea of the role of the police is to protect and serve, among other things. But they're there to serve the community. That's the role of the police. They're not acting on behalf of the government in that sense, because that's, you know, that's uh, then you have a whole bunch of other problems and you get militarization of the police. But they're there to serve the community, to protect the community. And then when stop and frisk was implemented in New York, the backlash from that, because they're doing the exact opposite of what they're sworn ethically and morally to do mm. which is that now it's a, a race thing about i mean for people who don't know stop and frisk in new york basically was just an excuse to harass black people that's essentially what mm. the whole idea was in the guise of um i guess crime prevention or whatever r- ridiculous policy that was and, and it's just funny because we can look at that and see how obvious that is but then when like what you're bringing, that's like, that's so obvious. It's so mm. obvious that yeah. how is that a success that you just, that person's struggling, that person's hurting and okay. I mean, they're, they're coming in cause they need a fix. They need something that it, it does. They're not making it up. They're, they're, they still need it. Right. It's just, okay. Maybe they're just being a little bit more manipulative about it, but what do you, what are you supposed to do? Yeah. Like, holy cow. Like, you know, geez, Louise, yeah. put yourself in those. Per- Again, it, it's just, it really blows my mind sometimes. Like, really mm. put yourself in that person's shoes and yeah. think of the struggles and the the issues that they're going through on that day. And you still want to tell me that what you're doing is the right thing? It's yeah. better that person goes out and dies on the street because they get a tainted supply of drugs. Because yeah. it's not my fault. I had nothing to do with it, right? Because there's all kind with a safe supply. There's still a chill amongst physicians. Like I don't, and I I think I'm still one of the few people who are writing these scripts, right? Because um, you do not want it to get back that somehow the medication that you gave them was associated with an overdose. And it's possible it could be. You you can overdose on hydromorphone. Um, and if it's possible that people would take their day supply and use it all at once and die, it's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, uh, and as a physician, in my perspective, I shouldn't be penalized for that. Like I shouldn't lose my license because that happened. Uh, but I could like that. It's a po- the way the, the system works. Whereas if I refuse to give it and they died of a fentanyl poisoning, it's not my responsibility. I, I mean, I could have done something to, to help them. I decided not to because it's personally too much of a risk for me. Um, but then they died. So, I mean, it's, uh, there's, we still have a ways to go with that. And that, that I think that what I'm trying to convince doctors who are on the fence about doing this, that using this technology is a, the safest thing they can do. Because in real time, we know every pill that comes out of that machine. If we think people are not handling things well, we can make them come back multiple times and do it. And, you know, I'm, I'm very open to want to get safe drugs out there. But I'm not saying, you know, then there's new guidelines that BC government put out that allow, that gives doctors some cover for doing that and basically says if somebody is at risk of COVID or needs isolation, you can give them a 23-day supply of hydromorphone. And that, that's been happening a little bit. No, the fifth, Of the 15 people that I'm seeing, none of them 
could do well on that. Like it's not being like paternalistic or, but people have like a, a compulsive addiction to using these drugs. They're poor, they're poor as dirt. So if you give people, you know, a thousand dollars worth of street value pills in a big bag, I don't think they're gonna do that well spreading them out over three weeks. So we're not, I don't think we're doing them though that person any particularly good service i think that people realize that regulation is a useful thing for them also so the machine allows doctors who you know would be reluctant to give people a large prescription and hope for the best um, a very regulated way to do that so i'm hoping that technology can kind of open people's minds that are quite cautious about doing this now that they could actually do give people a safer supply of drugs in a very controlled regulated way so um yeah because I, I do think people would be helped with some you know regulation and uh you know it's no sense giving people a week supply and them coming back in two days and say i don't have any more and which i think would happen and um we you know poverty is the other overriding thing you a lot of people are not considered like dealers but they that's how they make their money like they you get your your check on welfare day you buy a, a supply of drugs on that day you um, try to spread it out the best you can but you buy enough that you can sell a bit so it's all this little micro economy happening down there so that's why you know just the police say you know just after the dealers like pretty much all the transactions down there are done by people who are also using drugs. It's just this micro little dealing thing that's uh, ubiquitous. It's not, you know, some guy with sunglasses and a Cadillac who's like slowly driving up Hastings and handing out drugs in the window, you know. Those guys are not nowhere near the scene, you know. So uh, most of the dealing is done in little bits and pieces and... Um, the uh and so tar you know there's nobody to really target as far as uh, the supply and and having said that from our narco experience the more you take out the dealers the worse it gets so there's nothing more you know um you know anxiety provoking than somebody who wakes up in the morning and find out their dealer's just been jacked up and taken away like now what do i do like i now and that causes a lot of problems and the police often have schedules where they do these sweeps. And so most of the people that are, you know, known to sell drugs disappear in a day and then just throws the whole system into chaos because uh, people do, you know, need a dealer, basically need a supply. So That 23-day supply thing, that's real? That's actually... That's what it says because people have to go into... Wow. Uh, so that's for the... That's <laughs> wow. for this... Uh, you know, I think an un-operational um, plan that you take somebody who's at risk or known to be COVID positive, find them a nice place to stay for three weeks and give them the drugs. Um, so that's a kind of, uh, that's where that came from. I don't think many people are getting that um, because, you know, as doctors are not, there's some advocates out there who are saying, go demand it from your doctor because these are the guidelines, but they're guidelines. They're not, there's That's no right. obligation. Not guidelines. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> most doctors at this point in time, I've had a lot of trouble getting them to join, you know, to prescribe through the machine. 
Like there's one. <laughs> so that, that we're not going to switch, you know, uh, flip a switch and all of a sudden all the treating doctors there are going to be handing out these scripts. It's going to be not very many. But. Well, like anything, if you're at the, it doesn't matter what area you look at. I mean, my dad and I always joke about how Kiss, the, the band, is mm. re they revolutionized the music industry in countless ways, and they get shit on constantly and continue to do so after, and they're almost going on 50 years. <laughs> and it's just funny because, I mean, it's just so ridiculous. Whenever you're at the front, that's always when you're going to be facing the most you know, pushback is against yeah. that. And, and if you don't have, you can look at it in so many different ways and you can see that pattern emerge. And yeah, I, I just hope that, and I'm sure it will. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit optimistic. Um, it, it's yeah. about kiss about kiss. Yes. That kiss <laughs> continues to, <laughs> cause I did give forward. up my, in high school I had like, I'm probably making this up, but very good tickets to Maple Leaf Gardens to see Kiss. There you go. And it was only half of Maple Leaf Gardens um, that they had curtained off for Kiss. So 8,000 people. I think I was in the on the floor somewhere. And the night of the, uh, the day before the concert, somebody offered me like twice as much for this ticket they really wanted. And I gave, I sold that ticket oh. in high school. That was my first scalping experience probably. I, at that, it was probably like a $12 ticket and I sold it for like $20 and probably 1978 or something like that. And uh, so I remember, so I never saw them, unfortunately, but oh, uh, I, I was close. Sad, <laughs> I was sad. 24 hours away, but I never got to my Kiss concert. <laughs> I have a question for you, Mark. So with the COVID-19 era now, uh, your machines or the machines that are available are a palm scan. So can can the technology be changed to be either a retinal scan or even a palm scan where you're not touching the screen? So the palm scanner you don't touch. It's a oh, non-touch. Oh, okay. It's a non-touch. Um, it, you have to be you have to get to about two or three inches, okay. and it it okay. reads it. I thought you had to touch. No, it's okay. a non-touchable thing. So that you know, we didn't at the time. I didn't even think twice. But now with COVID, it's, it makes a lot of sense. Um, there is a screen that you act. There's a video screen at the front that you hit it to activate it. Um, we've come up, the next machines have an antiviral coating on it. So that's supposed to be not virus can't live on that. So, um, I think it'll work. Um, but you can also like wipe it down if you needed to after, but the actual scanner is not, uh, not contactable. The, I've learned a little bit about biometrics now. Um, so, uh, a fingerprint are pretty much useless. You can replicate that with scotch tape. And a, apparently a good iPhone can replicate your vir your retinal scan. So you can take a nice picture of your wide open eyes and flip it to the machine and it'll, it'll, uh, it'll open it. So, I mean, I've never tried it. Um, when I go to airports, I think that must be the greatest technology ever, but apparently it's not. So, uh, the, va the, the vein scan is totally individualized. There's no way that the machine can make a mistake. You can set it to different from very stringent to not so stringent. So I think, you know, I don't, the technology is somewhere in between. So, um, but everybody has a vein pattern and it reads like the moving vein. So you can't put a, like a, a decapitated hand up to the machine, which is pretty useful in narco, you know, <laughs> so just, narco would find like, a way to do yeah. that. You just find a thousand hands and bring them with you. But, um, 
that, so it has to be kind of moving blood through somebody's hand. Uh, yeah, so that part's remarkable. And you can, you can use the same scanning technology to get in a room. So if you just wanted only access to people in the program, you could do that to the door. And so that would gain them access to a room where they could access the machine. So it's a, yeah, I think the technology is amazing. And the, and we can make these machines into telemedicine too. So there's a screen. Um, the first, the prototype isn't equipped to do that, but the next generations would have ability to uh, contact somebody directly. So this idea that people need to have some connection um, with a doctor writing, you know, refilling scripts and stuff, you could do that all at the machine. And so for, especially for remote areas and things where, you know, we, we focus so much on the downtown east side where relatively speaking, there's so many resources, so many skilled people. And, you know, you go to Surrey or Abbotsford or so, like you're starting from scratch. I mean, there's, you know, not that there's nobody, but um, it, they just don't have the resources or the, you know, um, to make that happen. And you could plant a machine in, you know, a remote area tomorrow and get it going in 24 hours. I mean, you don't need to build a lot of infrastructure. It's all like the protocols are all packaged. So uh, what I'm trying to really position this as a scalable solution. This, this isn't a, a year project, you know, you go meet somebody in Nelson, let's build a building, let's train staff, let's do, you know, it's it could be, you could set it up very quickly, so. That's very exciting. That's. Yeah. It's a it's a lot to take. I'm just having a great time, just sitting and just taking everything in. But but it's a very, but it deserves it. Th this issue demands your time and respect in order to understand. That's the thing, and that's why it's always so funny. Like you know those those snap objections or those snap reactions to something like this. It's like no no no. There's a lot of complexity to the situation when it comes to just just dealing well people are complex and groups of people well, a person is complex <laughs> multiple people it just keeps it just keeps adding to it yeah you know? well you get to these position you get to this place because of the journey that i've taken right yeah. so to take somebody who hasn't not really followed this at all um because this has been um sort of advice I've been given because sometimes mm -hmm. when I talk about it I'm just making way too many assumptions <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. that uh I can I'm at this position that seems so obvious to me like how what yeah. it makes no sense how you're objecting to this but from other people's perspective it would be I guess like me talking to somebody from NASA or something I wouldn't know spaceships seem cool but I wouldn't know where to start so anyways uh the uh yeah, so I have to understand that people need some bringing along. But the other, I think, really important point is any any headway we've made in drug policy is really at the community level. There's and yeah. and in healthcare too. There's really nothing that's stemmed from leadership down saying this would be a good idea. It's always pressure, 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 and then any breakthrough is because of that pressure and that uh, policymakers, decision makers, politicians, whatever come on board after it's shown to be safe and proven. So I uh, came into this not expecting that I'd get like a ringing endorsement from the ministry. Like that that's not the way politicians work. And they never has been. It's not their fault about drug policy. That's just not the way things work. And so Insight started out uh, for three or four years. There was illegal sites that were set up and I worked I kind of worked in some of those and uh, or supported them and uh, 
until insight just became so unstoppable and the government had to had to support it um, so this is the same sort of thing so I'm I'm totally not discouraged by the fact that um, I you know I, I haven't been able to get a lot of you know uh, government like approval for this because I think that's totally predictable and going into this kind of making changes and innovation I think that's what you need and the only thing I can offer is uh, is perseverance because I think there's um, you know there still is days when I well why am I even doing this um, but I think that things that have worked and if you look back on how they actually happened it was somebody or a group of people who just didn't give up right they're just relentless and so when I walk out of a meeting with the College of Pharmacy basically telling me that there's no way that they you know I, I you know I'm not angry I know that I'm gonna have to try again and I'm gonna have to try again and I'm gonna have to try this I'll just wear down the system basically and uh, and with the support of the community so part of my you know the letters and stuff that I've got to move this forward to the next level is basically all community supporters like people who you know know about this stuff people I trust and it the the, the letters that I'm going to get from the Ministry of Health will come later and I have to be accepting that that's the way the system works and um, although I do have a ringing endorsement from the Vancouver Police Department so that's interesting so that's they fantastic look at this as crime prevention basically like why why would they you know in when you think about you know I've I've done so many tours through insight so you take a group of people who really know nothing about it and one of the common questions after the tour is well don't people Bring, don't you give people drugs here? And they say, oh, no, they go out and they do all this stuff. And so by the time they get here, most of the most of their days already behind them. Like, you know, the, <laughs> the, the anxiety about getting drugs. Once you have a pocket full of dope and you arrive at Insight, eh, I can relax. I got, you know, nobody's going to bug me here. I can use my drugs. But you should have saw what I went through the last two hours. That was hell. Like I was like, chased by police and chased by dealers. And I did have to do this. And I had to take this. Like it, it's a real struggle for people. And uh, and the police kind of know that too. Like all of their issues and all the, the, the community chaos is getting the drugs. It's not the drugs. Once you get the drugs, it's, it's easy street, you know, <laughs> but uh, um but so that's the way the police kind of look at it too. They kind of understand that uh, acquisition of drugs is the main issue that they're facing. And uh, if people can just walk to a machine and pick it up, a lot of their a lot of that issue is behind them, basically. So, and not saying that tomorrow we'll put in two machines and the downtown east side won't look the same mm -hmm. anymore. I mean, this is a you know you also have to be realistic this is a long road right so this is i think an intervention that can certainly be helpful and if we scaled it up big enough it might be helpful on a relatively high scale um but the, it's it's complex too and um as much as the people that are currently getting their drugs through the machine will tell me that things are way better for them uh, they, you know, they still have issues. I mean, the trauma that got them in the place they're at now hasn't gone away. <laughs> they haven't all of a sudden got a house and a job and like, you know, they're in a better position to work on that. But it's it's nothing. It's not, you know, it's just not going to flip a switch. If you've been, if your life's been the shits for 30 years, I mean, getting drugs from a machine will be nice for you, but it's not going to fix everything. Um, so, yeah. <laughs>
So I'm, you know, realistic with what, you know, people expect me to say, you know, I put, you know, 15 people on the machine. They're all working. Nobody does yeah. crime anymore. <laughs> they had their families. But like, no, you know, it. I put them, hopefully put them in a better position to work towards that. But it's it's not going to be miraculous. I mean, we did follow up urines on everybody. Um, and 90% still have fentanyl in their urine. So even, you know, I think they're using the drugs that I gave them. For many, it's not enough. And for some, they still want to buy something. But if they buy, you know, if they've reduced their, their purchase of fentanyl by 80%, that's 80% less likely they're going to die of an overdose. So for me, that's harm reduction. So I'm not, I, you know, I'm not going to penalize you if, you if I still find you have fentanyl in your urine. I totally expect you will. But I think you hopefully buy less and then you could work towards a point where you don't want to buy it anymore. And that, that could happen. Most, if I, I ask everybody when they start, what is your objective of being on this? Everybody to stop using drugs. That's that I really, I can't take this anymore. I really need to get out of this. So that's people's ultimate objective um, that they really like to reduce or stop using drugs. And if we can help them to do that, um, that's great. Um, if they tell me the next day they stopped using drugs, I just don't believe them. That is just not, that's just not the way it works. And so um, you're on a journey and this uh, hopefully helps you push you to the, a better path. Um, but it's not, it's not magic. So for the small percentage that you do find fentanyl in or whatever percentage it is, is there a, a thought in the back of your mind to then increase their hydromorphone yep. dose? Yep. So um, because of the scrutiny this was under, I had a, a arbitrary max dose of uh, 128 milligrams a day. So uh, that's uh, 16 dilated eights. And so uh, when I talk to people who are on the street, because um, I did, you know, I've done a lot of work before we arrived at this. Um, most people said that's probably pretty good. Like if I could get 16 dillies. But now when I do, how are you, do you, are you getting enough? Half tell me no. So the reason they're still buying fentanyl is because they still get a bit drug sick and they still need more. So I've, there's one person now on 24 pills. So I, there's, it's quite arbitrary. And if people tell me, you know, what would really help me if I got another four of these things, and then I don't think I'd need, then yeah. But I, I was just, at the beginning, the protocol was relatively cautious. The, uh, the new guidelines provincially uh, cap it out at 12 dilates, um, 12 or 14, but less, even less. So that's going to be a problem for people. They're not, it's not going to be enough. So, um, so that it gets, you know, it gets a bit clumsy with the pills because you have to grind them and inject them. You only get so much in a, in a needle. You can get actually technical reason you get four in a one cc syringe so it's quite a lot of drug you can get in a shot but it's relatively short acting so i'm sort of basing that on uh, four injections or four uses a day and uh, some people would use five or six um, so the to me the dose is fairly arbitrary i mean um, you know i i think we could uh, really try and individualize it and in in the supervised program at crosstown that's their goal to give as people as much every, you know, they titrate them up and people are on pretty mega doses. So there's, there's some very high doses, uh, twice as much as I'm giving people or even more. So, uh, 
yeah. So I, we have to be open to people's tolerances and things. And it, the, you know, it's a tolerance is a tough thing to figure out, but there has been a bit of a shift in the whole community because fentanyl is so potent that, uh, your brain is fairly plastic to these things. And so you build up, you come down and you, your, your tolerance jumps around quite a bit. Um, that's why it's such an issue for people who have either been in hospital or had been in jail coming back to the community and getting fentanyl. Then that's been, you know, underlying a lot of the mistakes people have made. You know, I, I, I was in jail for th- four weeks. I came back. I got exactly the same um, what I used to get. And I actually split it in half and I went down like a rock. <laughs> so, cause it's, uh, it's so potent. So, um, and then once people, but people can't, the, the other beauty of the regulated approach when people know exactly what they're getting, if their goal is to wean down and that is what, you can do it in a very systematic, careful way. So you can bring your tolerance down. So we could start you at the 16 pills. And if your objective was to move yourself down, we could take a pill off a week or however you want to do it. And I think there will be people who want to do that actually. And you can you know, work with your tolerance and, and actually bring it down like we, like we do with a lot of substances and things, if that's your objective. I heard this once and it's really stuck with me, which is that if you have the ability to do something, you have the responsibility to do it. And mm. I like to think that a lot of people, a lot more people kind of need to step up to the plate on that that if you have the ability to make Mm. a change and the ability to make a positive difference on one person just one person if you have the ability to do it you have the responsibility to do it and i'm really happy to see that um, i'm i feel very privileged to have you come on here and really embody that and i'm very happy that you're doing that and i yeah it's going to be a battle still um but i keep going with it. It's brilliant. And I think it's, uh, a, considering just say no was not that long ago, Right. it's come a long way and, and there's still a way to go when it comes to, you know, drugs and drug policy and, and stigma around that. Um, but thank you so much for being here. I know you have to go. Um, okay. so couldn't be happier to have you on here and, and thank you very much for, uh, Oh. Telling us about your work. Thank you so much for inviting me. I obviously like talking about this stuff. So it's, uh, yeah, to try and get the word out is uh, is really important because public education is uh, is really important. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk about it. And hopefully we shifted a little bit of public opinion through this. Yeah. Hopefully. We'll see. Yeah. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Marcus. Great. Thanks, Jack.